Matthew chapter number 26, I'm going to begin in verse 57. I'm going to read a little bit of scripture this morning, um, more scripture than I normally read, but it's all relevant. I need it all. So uh, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57. And those days uh, they laid hold of Jesus and led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. Now, the high priest's courtyard was in the high priest's house. So sometimes when we read this, we think like they took him off to some special building. They took him to the house of the high priest. And he went in and he sat with the servants to see the end. In other words, Peter was was checking out. The public was allowed into the courthouses, if you will. And he, he went there to see what was going on and how this thing would, would end up. Now, the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false witness or false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. And even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Clearly, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, You're going to destroy this temple, pointed to his body. And he said, And then I'll raise it up in three days. But they said that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple, the physical building, and raise it up in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. And they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one that struck you? John chapter 18 is the next portion of Scripture I want to go to. Verse number 12. Said so then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Anas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was that Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 19 says, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in, the se- and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like this? And Jesus answered, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of that evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Today we are concluding our series, Answers, Biblical Answers for a Broken Nation. We've looked at a lot of things. We've looked at what the Bible has to say about racism and loving your neighbor and how to use our words and, and justice. And last week in our message, ju- liberty and justice for all. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are going to delve into the number one story in our nation right now. The appointment of Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. This appointment has caused much controversy. It has sparked fierce debate. It's brought out the worst in many. It's propelled a lot of issues to the forefront of our national discourse. 
some good issues, some not so good. The list of issues is endless and includes the prominence of the Me Too movement and its efforts to stop sexual harassment and assault, tribalism among our leaders and nation, abortion, marriage, and the definition of gender, the difficulty of stepping forward and telling your story after sexual assault, victimization, the seriousness of false allegations, the thirst for power, and the lows that people will stoop to in order to either remain in power or obtain power. What should be the standard by which we judge a person's innocence or guilt? What is the statute of limitations or what should it be on something that happened in high school? How far into a person's past should we go in judging their present and future performance? What kinds of questions should a potential victim be subject to? What kind of evidence should we demand to substantiate an allegation? How should we treat our enemies? What constitutes fairness in both our courts of law and the courts of public opinion? Can we trust those who we have elected to do what's right for the country instead of what's politically expedient for them? And is our political system broken beyond repair? Those are the issues. Those are the questions that are on the table. And the silver lining in all of this is we are having conversations about these issues instead of sweeping them underneath the rug because you can't ever solve anything unless you have conversations about them. But once again, we look to the Word of God for answers in the midst of what seems like mayhem. These are not easy answers. If they were easy answers, we'd solve them. But we look to God. He's the only source of truth. He's the one who can cut through all of the noise. He's the one who can speak to our souls and consciousness and not leave us with some politically persuaded answer to these issues, but rather with truth that is, that is undeniably present in the word of God. Only he, as the disciples said, have the words of eternal life. And so it's with this that I want to talk to you today about a sermon that I'm calling the most important Supreme Court decision ever. The most important Supreme Court decision ever. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you give me the grace to minister on this subject? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us to find truth in the middle of chaos and confusion? We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, once again, as with all the sermons in this series, this is not a political message. It is not an attempt to help you become more politically perceptive or cause you to favor a side, vote for a party, or render a judgment on the circumstances surrounding this Supreme Court decision. My assignment is much, much more important and eternal than that. My assignment is to lift your eyes to a much greater and longer-lasting Supreme Court decision. Sure, the current political discourse and Supreme Court decision revolves around how the values of that court and our country will be shaped for the next 30 to 40 years. And for some of you, that is a lifetime. But the Supreme Court decision that I am referring to and that I want to speak to you about has greater ramifications than just in this lifetime. It has eternal ramifications. And so I'm encouraging you to lift up your eyes, to set your mind on things above and not things below, to fix your eyes on not what is seen, but that which is unseen, to focus not on the natural, which is here today and gone tomorrow, but on the eternal, which is forever. What Supreme Court decision are you speaking of, Pastor? The Supreme Court decision to pronounce guilt on our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not the one in the news that is the most important Supreme Court decision ever. 
The most important Supreme Court decision ever rendered was rendered about 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ, our innocent, blameless, spotless Savior, was sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin of his time who were the Supreme Court of his time. And as we come to our text, we find that Jesus has just been arrested by local authorities who have bribed one of his friends, a.k.a. Judas, into arresting him and selling out our Savior. He's arrested and brought before what we will see is the Jewish Supreme Court in the most unjust trial in human history. To understand how unjust this trial was, this arrest and this verdict, we have to understand how the Jews valued justice and fairness and equity and jurisprudence during their time. And although this is not my reason for sharing some of these foundational things to the Jewish legal system with you, you'll notice that a lot of the things that I'm going to teach you was supposed to be the basis of the Jewish legal system are supposed to be the basis of our legal system. And you'll be able to pick out those similarities as I go along. But the piece of wisdom that the Jewish justice system was based on was Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse number 18. Here's what it says. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is given you. So God's standard for judgment and justice was that the powers that were to be judges had the utmost respect for fairness, righteousness, never distorting what is true, not being partial, not taking a bribe, but always seeking justice and only justice, which we learned last week in our message is giving people what is due them, motivated by God's compassion and God's grace. And so they had a high regard for justice, fairness, equity, and all of that. The Jewish people therefore elected councils. And these councils were known as the Sanhedrin, both the lesser or the smaller council and the great Sanhedrin. The smaller council was made up of 23 people, and they were in charge of hearing uh, smaller matters. And then the great Sanhedrin, or the Supreme Court of its day, they were made up of 70 chief priests, scribes, elders, experts in the law, and one high priest who was the presider over the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court. And again, they were supposed to be made up of people who had the highest regard for not being partial, for fairness, for seeking justice at all court cost. And so what they did was they guaranteed a person, there were certain laws of jurisprudence which guaranteed a person certain rights when they came before for the Supreme Court in Bible times. The first one was a public trial. And so there was to be no trials that were done on the cover of night, off hours in clandestine ways. It had to be done in the middle of the day before the public so that everybody could see what was going on and so that there could be no kind of sham. There could be nobody set up. There could be no backroom deals or anything like that. And the idea was that the judges would always be under the scrutiny of the public. And so the first law of jurisprudence, I guess, was a public trial. The second law 
was the right to a self-defense, meaning that anyone brought in on a criminal procedure had the right to be defended. And, and this was so serious that they provided a defense for you if you didn't have your own defense. And last week, we talked a little bit about why that is important in society. We talked about how sometimes when you have privilege and when you have money and when you have things like that, you're able to manipulate a system greater than somebody who can't. If you have a lawyer and somebody don't, doesn't, that you're usually able to get fairer justice than somebody who doesn't. And so we talked about that within the context of justice last week, but this was one of the things that was built into the legal system in their time. Then thirdly, the third thing that they guaranteed everybody is that you were only pronounced guilty by the corroboration of two or three witnesses. And so you could not be pronounced guilty just because you said so or just because an accusation was brought against you. There had to be corroboration by two or three witnesses. And the standard of evidence that the witnesses were held to was extremely high. The witnesses had to attest to the identity of the party, They had to depose the month, the day, the hour, and the circumstances of the crime. And their stories had to match exactly. No hearsay or generalities were admitted. Moreover, false witnessing was an extremely, extremely severe crime. And it came from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16. Go there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse number 16. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the, in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days. And I want you to remember, notice that they, they stand before the Lord, the Lord, right? Remember back in the day, and I don't know if this is still the case in every courtroom of America, and I probably should know that, but I don't. You put your hand on the Bible. Swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall help you, God. What were they doing? Realizing that when we stand before somebody on matters that are serious, that we have an obligation to one another and to the Lord to make sure that we are telling the truth and not bearing false witness. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you and those who remain shall hear and fear and hear here and after they shall not again commit such evil among you and so what they tried to do is they try to make sure all of the information that they always gathered had the utmost integrity behind it now in cases of execution where a criminal was uh, about to be put to death here's a little bit more background first of all the person who brought the allegation against the individual had to be the one if they were found guilty to throw Throw the first stone. Remember last week we talked about that in freedom, uh, liberty, and justice for all. We talked about how Jesus said to the Pharisees when they brought the woman, not the man, but the woman. They left the man to go scot-free, but yet they condemned the woman. That is unjust, right? And what they did, Jesus said, he was without sin, cast the first stone. What was he saying? Okay, if you're going to bring this accusation that requires an execution, here's what you have to do. You have to be willing to throw the stone because if it's proven to be false and the person is killed, now you're not only guilty of false testifying but you're guilty of murder and the blood of that individual and the blood of all the people who are not born as a result of that person going to death are going to be held against you and so this was what this was all about secondly the execution 
of an individual could not happen on the same day that it was, that the person was found guilty. So let's say that on such and such a day, let's say it was today, that we find somebody guilty of, uh, uh, of something worthy of death. We couldn't execute them today. We had a day in between, which was a day of fasting and prayer, where all of the justices would go before the Lord and make sure that their hearts were open to the Lord. It was also a day where new evidence could come forward and that they would consider new evidence. And then on the third day, not literally three 24-hour periods, but on the third day, you were able to execute the person. So there was a day in between. Notice the carefulness they gave to the evidence. That day in between, new evidence was allowed to come forward. There was no blocking of evidence. There was no failure to look at everything that came up. They welcomed it because what they were after was the truth. What they were after was justice in the situation. But then on the day of execution, they were really, really careful. On the day of execution, what they would do is at the hall of judgment, the hall of justice was was the courthouse. That's where all cases had to be heard. They couldn't be heard in the high priest's house. They couldn't be heard somewhere in the corner at a club or in a restaurant. They had to be heard at the hall of justice. So what they would do is they would put an officer outside of the hall of justice on the day of execution with a flag on the steps. And what the officer did was the officer would signal to another officer who was riding on a horse and leading the party to the execution with the executioners. And if new evidence came to the Supreme Court, somebody walked to the Hall of Justice and said, I have something. The officer would wave the flag. The person on the horse would keep looking back, would see it, would turn everybody around. They'd go back to the Hall of Justice and they'd reopen the case again. Not only that, but if the person who is condemned to die all of a sudden thought of something that might be relevant to free them, the, the person would, the, the person on the horse would turn everybody around, they'd go back to the hall of justice, and they allowed for this for up to five times because that's how committed they were to justice being served in the situation. They even went a step further. They had a herald. You know what a herald is? It's somebody that calls something out. Then a herald before the prisoner and before the officer on the horse. And the herald would yell out the person's name. And then the herald would say, if anybody in the crime, if anybody has any evidence to show the innocence of this person, let them call forth, let them come forth now. And if anybody came forth, they turn the whole thing around and they go back to the hall of justice and they'd investigate the evidence again. And so this was a real genuine search for the truth. This is how God wanted it to be. Moreover, on the third day, if they got to the place of execution, if they got there, then there was no turning back. Then they would execute the person swiftly and quickly. Now, here's the thing. If you were in the hands of the Sanhedrin, you'd feel pretty comfortable that you're not going to get railroaded. You'd feel pretty comfortable that, you know what? The truth is going to come out in this situation. And the the axiom of the Sanhedrin was that the Sanhedrin exists to save life, not to destroy life. Again, justice is motivated by God's compassion and God's mercy. That is the heartbeat. And so that's how they had their system set up. Now, here's the question I want to ask us. How did the Supreme Court of Jesus's day do when it came to giving Jesus this kind of justice. Let's look at our text. Verse number 57 in Matthew's gospel. 
And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. And Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. Now, we said that the one thing they were supposed to do for everybody, first thing, was public hearing, right? Now, it, notice how Peter is lumped into this thing, and Peter followed as a, at a distance. What did Jesus say to Peter? Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. When does the rooster crow? As the sun is about to come up. Before the sun comes up is nighttime. When was Jesus taken to Caiaphas' house? In the middle of the night. That was illegal. You could not have a trial in the middle of the night in the house of Caiaphas. It had to be done at the hall of judgment. Jesus actually had many unjust trials, not just one. He had one in the house of Caiaphas. We're going to see in a minute one in the house of another high priest, one in the courts of Pilate. And he had actually six of them, but we don't have time to go through them. But notice what happens in John's gospel. John gives us a little detail that Matthew does not give us. We all understand that the gospels are a composite of information, right? That when we look at them, we get the whole story. Matthew describes to skip over what the detail that John gives. But in John's gospel, John chapter 18, verse number 12, we find, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Anas first... For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Here's the question. Who was Anas? Anas was the high priest before Caiaphas. Why wasn't he the high priest still? Because in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish religion, you were a high priest for life. But what happened is under Roman occupancy, they forced the Jewish people to cause Anas to step down because Anas was gaining so much popularity and power that they said, no, no, he can't be in power anymore. Succeed him with somebody else. So they put Caiaphas in Anas's place. But in their minds, Anas was still the high priest because God said it was a lifetime appointment. And so what they do is they bring Jesus before they bring him to Caiaphas to the house of Anas. Now, why did they bring him to the house of Anas? Because Anas hated Jesus. Jesus and Anas did not like one another. Why did Anas hate Jesus? There was something in Bible times called the bazaars of Anas. The bazaar, anybody ever hear of the bazaars of Anas? I just want to see how astute some of you are. The bazaars of Anas. Now, here were the bazaars of Anas. The Jews would go to the temple and it was considered disrespectful to go to the temple without bringing God an offering, right? And by the way, just so you know, it's disrespectful today. Matter of fact, the scripture says on the first day of the week, everybody should lay aside their offering as the Lord has prospered them. So we should come to God with something. When you go to the king of the universe, you bring a gift. How many go to people's houses for dinner? Anybody go to people's house for dinner? I don't, I don't know if this is still like customary these days, but if it isn't, let me bring it back. When you go to somebody's house for dinner, you should bring a little something. It's just courteous, right? Well, when you come to the king of the universe, you're supposed to bring something that is worthy, that's honorable for a king. And so they would bring two types of things. They would bring coinage or money. Or they would bring an animal. Now, 
when they would come with their money, the Jews lived in a pagan society. And so their money was imprinted or inscribed with idols on it. For Jewish people, they could not give that money to the Lord because it was like worshiping idols and then giving it to God. So what they had to do when they come to the house of the Lord was they had to go to the money changers table in the temple. And they would exchange their money for money that they could give to God. And guess who was in charge of the money changers table? Anas. And so what they did was they came to Anas, and Anas never gave them a fair exchange. He extorted from the people, and so he was getting rich through dishonest means. But if they didn't have coinage, what they would do is they would bring a sheep or a goat or an animal of some sort. But before they could give the animal as a sacrifice to the Lord, they had to go before a council of priests who would expect the animal to make sure that the animal was without blemish because you couldn't give God your scraps. That's a whole nother sermon right there. I could preach on that for a minute, but I'm not gonna. So lucky you, that's next week. So what they would do is they take the animals and the priest would inspect the animals and they go, ah, blemish, can't can't give this one to the Lord. But now the people wanted to go and worship, but they couldn't go into worship without giving God something. So what they said is, no worries. We'll take your animal and you can go over and buy an animal from the temple stockyard. And the animals in the temple stockyard were three times as much money as the animals on the street. And guess who was in charge of the animal stockyard in the temple? On us. Now, what does Jesus do when Jesus walks into the temple? The very first thing, John chapter 2. He makes a whip and he chases all of the animal exchangers and money changers out of the temple. And he turns the temple tables upside down. And he says, do not make my house into a house of thieves. For this is a house of prayer. What was Jesus doing? He was messing with Anas' business. Jesus got all up in his system. And so now Jesus is growing in power. He's growing in popularity. He's turning their religious scam upside down. He's really in their business. And so what do they do? They say, we got to put this guy to death. And so they make up some charges. They send the temple guard to go get Jesus. And instead of bringing him for a fair trial, they bring him to the house of Anas who hates him. Anas. We'll find something wrong with Jesus. And when we go there, notice what Anas says to Jesus. He says, John chapter 18, verse number 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. This was a violation of jurisprudence. Why? Because a criminal, somebody arrested, could not convict themselves. They were not allowed to convict themselves. Matter of fact, what you had to do when you brought in somebody who was convicted of a crime is you had to tell them what the crime was. And so what they do for Jesus is they don't tell him what the crime is, but instead they start asking him questions so that he will incriminate himself. I want you to notice what Jesus says. Here's Jesus' response. He said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying to them, why are you trying to set me up? 
Jesus is saying to them, why are you trying to get me to incriminate myself? You're not supposed to be asking me. That's against the law. What you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be telling me what I'm in being arrested for. And then you're supposed to get witnesses to corroborate the charge. And if you can't do that, then this is unjust. Now notice what happened. Verse number 22. And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? In other words, Anas realized that he had been found out. And so what did he do? He resorts to violence. By the way, listen, in our nation, we should be protesting when we feel something is unjust. Protest is powerful. Protest is part of what goes on in our nation. Because of protest, we have had some rights wronged in our nation. So thank God for protest in our nation. But let's go back to the way that MLK taught protest. Peaceful demonstration. Non-violent demonstration. Whenever we resort to violence, what we are doing is we are stepping down from where God wants us to be. Now watch this. So Jesus says this, they strike him with the palm of his hand. Verse number 23, Jesus then responds. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't turn the other cheek. He says, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if, well, why do you strike me? Then Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In other words, Jesus said, you are violating every single law of jurisprudence here. And so what does he do? He sends him bound to where? Caiaphas. Who is Caiaphas? Caiaphas was his son-in-law. Do you see how this whole thing was a setup from the start to the finish when it came to Jesus. So what does he do? He goes to Caiaphas. Now I can go on and on about the unjust treatment of Jesus in the greatest Supreme Court decision ever rendered, the decision to put Jesus to death. It happened in the night. There was no evidence of wrongdoing. There were no witnesses. They found witnesses. And when they found witnesses, they made them make up the charges. Then they arrested him on a bribe. They tried to get Jesus to incriminate himself. They provided him with no defense. And then they met in public early in the morning on the third day to make it official, even though they had already pinned the charge on him. What am I telling you? This is the most unjust Supreme Court decision that has ever been made in the history of the world. And I'm not talking about the one that you saw play out in the news right now. I'm talking about what happened with Jesus Christ. What are the takeaways? What are the takeaways? Number one, takeaway number one. God is speaking to us. Say, what do you mean, Pastor? Could it be that God is speaking to us through this congressional circus that is playing out before our eyes, not for justice, don't get it twisted, it's for power, and there's blame to go around, but that's not my subject right now. Could it be that God is allowing the spectacle to be on display because he wants us to lift up our eyes to the hills from whence our help comes from? Could it be that God has allowed this circus to draw our attention to the Savior? Could it be that God is giving humanity another chance, another opportunity, another call to come to the cross of Christ? Could it be that God is using what is playing out in recent history to call our attention to what we have forgotten happened in history past? Could it be that what is considered to be the most supreme court, the most important supreme court decision of all time is really God shouting out to man to remember the truly most important supreme court decision of all time. Could it be that God loves lost humanity that much? That despite our motivations, 
Despite our hunger and thirst for power, despite our lust for what serves us best, despite our disingenuous attempts at justice, despite our sin against him and against one another, despite our sexual perversity, despite our willingness to lie to get what we want, despite our willingness to hurt and use and prostitute people for political gain, that the God of the universe is calling out to you and I as a great reminder to point us back to the only person of true justice, and that is Jesus Christ. Christ, could it be that God is speaking to us? Second takeaway is that Jesus loves us. Second takeaway from the most important Supreme Court decision ever, Jesus loves us. The old song says, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Jesus loves me, this I know, as he loved me so long ago, taking children on his knees, saying, let them come to me. Jesus loves me still today, walking with me on the way, wanting as a friend to give light and love to all who live. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates are open wide. Jesus loves me, he will wash away my sin, let the little children come in. Jesus loves me, he will stay close behind me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me, I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. The greatest Supreme Court decision in the history of mankind tells us Jesus loves us. Why? Because Jesus was innocent. And he that was innocent took on guilt willfully for you and I. He who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He did it so that you and I would not spend eternity apart from him so that you and I could have eternal life so that we can shun hell and make heaven. He did it so that you and I would not spend an eternal existence apart from me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The most important Supreme Court decision of all time tells me so. That's what this says. The third takeaway from the most important Supreme Court decision of all time is Jesus is our example. Jesus was innocent. He suffered and paid the price for a crime he did not commit. He knows what it's like to be treated unjustly. He knows what it's like to be framed. He knows what it's like to have the law that is supposed to protect you be the very thing that that failed him. And by the way, this applies to so much in our society because the law many times does not protect the people that it's meant to protect. Jesus knows what that feels like. He hurts when we hurt. He cries when we cry. He cringes when there's injustice. He's a defender of the weak. He's a father to the fatherless, a husband to the widow, a provider to the poor, a champion of the marginalized and the oppressed. He is our example, and he beckons us, as we learned last week, to be people who are committed to justice. He's our example. But not only is it our example there, he's our example in how we're supposed to love our enemy. Somewhere along the way, we have devolved in this area of society. In some ways, society is evolving, right? In some ways, we are evolving. But in some ways, we are de-evolving. And one of the ways that we are de-evolving is we now think that it is our right to treat people a certain kind of way if they say or do or act a certain kind of way. But Jesus is our example, 
And here is Jesus having every right to treat people with hate and treat people with visceral and treat people with, with contempt. But instead of doing that, what does he tell us in Matthew chapter 5? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be your father, children of your father who is in heaven. What is he telling us? He's saying, you know what? We've got to look to him as the example. How did he respond? He prayed for the salvation of those who treated him in the most unjust way. When on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is our example. Number four, fourth takeaway from the greatest Supreme Court decision of all time. Jesus is God. Notice again, Matthew chapter, chapter 26, verse 59 and 60. The chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. If I didn't know with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is the sinless, spotless Son of God and Savior of the world, I would need no more than the evidence in this particular trial. And here's why. Because all of hell, all of Satan's imps and demons and Satan himself was behind this thing. And he was looking under every rock and under every stone. And he had people who were working for him on the Supreme Court. And they were looking for it. And everybody was trying to find something against Jesus. But after they unturned every stone and after they flipped over every rock, the Bible records that they found none. And what this tells me is that there was none to find. And when there's none to find in the case of Jesus, it points us to something about Jesus, that he wasn't a good man and that he wasn't merely a prophet because every single one of us has got something that somebody can find on us. But when it came to Jesus, they found nothing on him, meaning he truly was God manifest in the flesh and the Savior of the world. Now, the devil will try to pin all sorts of accusations on us all the time, won't he? He's the accuser of the brethren. Has he ever tried to do that to you? Sometimes it comes through people. What does he say? You're no good and you'll never make it and you're inferior and you're dumb and you won't amount to anything and you're not valuable and you have no purpose. Your life doesn't matter and you can't and, and, and you won't. And all of that, you know what it is? It's not legit. What is legit is that you're a child of God. What is legit is that you are anointed, appointed, approved, and accepted with power and a purpose that is good reigning over your life, that God has a plan for you and forget all the you can'ts and only understand that with Christ on your side, you can do all things. If God is for you, who can be against you? It's not legit when the enemy tries to pin something on you. Do you remember God's on our side? Jesus was God. But then number five, fifth takeaway from the most important Supreme Court decision ever is that Jesus' trial was for the unborn. Now, I know that this seems like I'm trying to say something politically. Listen, I don't play like that, just so you all know me. If I need to say something, you won't have to figure out what I'm saying. I'm not the figure. I, I can't stand when people are figuring me out, people. You know, I, what, what, what did you do? 
what did you just say? No, I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, but it kind of sounded like you said that. I, I, I'm not, I, I just rather put it right there on the table. So I'm not trying to say nothing here, but here's what I am saying, that Jesus' trial was for the unborn. See, you and I were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were not alive to God. We were alienated from God and his family by virtue of our sin. We were in the womb of the enemy of our soul, not children of light, but children of darkness. And we needed a new birth. We needed to be born into the family of God. We needed to be born not of water, but of blood. We needed to be born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. We needed to be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the only thing that would do that was for the sinless, spotless son of God to hang on a cruel cross and pay payment for our sin so that we could be born again. The soldier who stood by took a spear and thrust it into the side of Jesus. Really the womb of Jesus because the Bible very specifically records it out came water and blood. What was God saying? God was saying that just like when a woman's water breaks, birth is about to take place. When Jesus hung on that cross, the new birth for all mankind was about to take place. And what Jesus is telling us through the greatest Supreme Court decision of all time is that his death, his trial was all about our birth. It was about our new birth that Jesus wanted to give every single person who would ever live and alive on the planet the opportunity to Start over again and be born again. The message is simple. You must be born again. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, John chapter 3, verse 3, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so I ask you who are here today, are you born again? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know if you were to die this moment or this second where you'd spend eternity? I ask at all of our campuses, New York City, are you born again? Atlanta, Waterbury, are you born again? Online church, are you born again? TV audience, are you born again? The trial of Jesus was all about our new birth. It was all about our destiny to become sons and daughters of Almighty God. And the last thing that the trial of Jesus, the most important Supreme Court decision in the history of man tells us is that our faith must stand trial. Our faith must stand trial. Do you notice how Peter is woven into the story? The Bible says that Peter followed at a distance. And Peter's faith was put on trial. He stood watching what was happening trying to get a glimpse of the clandestine trial that was happening in the middle of the night, trying to pin something on his Savior. And while he was there, it was a little cold, and the Bible says that he began to warm himself on a charcoal fire. And a woman came out and said, Oh, hey, are you one of his disciples? He said, No, I don't know what you're talking about. He kept warming his hands. woman comes back, she says, Gee, you you really look like... Matter of fact, you look like you were always with him. Matter of fact, I remember you saying things like, because you were beside him. Aren't you the outspoken one in the tribe? He said, I know what you're talking about. She went away. She came back a third time. 
She said, I, I know I've asked this twice already, but I just, I can't get this out of my mind. I'm, I'm pretty sure, man, if you're not him, you look just like that one that, you know, was always putting his foot in his mouth, hanging around Jesus. Are you sure you're not one of his? And you know what he said? He said, I don't know what the blankety blank you're talking about and who that blankety blank is. Bible said he cursed, swore. His faith stood trial. And it failed under trial. Has your faith ever stood trial? Has it ever collapsed when it was being questioned? Come on, let's be honest. Here's the good news. As Peter was warming his hand, he denied him that third time. And that rooster crowed. The Bible says he locked eyes with Jesus. And most people think, wow, that must have been the most painful experience that he could ever have. But I believe when he heard that rooster crow and when he locked eyes with Jesus, that even in his moment of crucifixion, Jesus was telling Peter, remember what I told you. Remember what I told you. What did he tell Peter? He didn't say that you just will deny me. He said, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Peter, even though it didn't stand up on the trial, I've got good news for you. There's still forgiveness and there's still restoration. And maybe right now, your faith has collapsed but God wants you to know there's still opportunity for you to get right with him we live in a time when our faith is standing trial where we are being asked if we are standing with the democratic platform or the republican platform and sadly we are deciding That the most important stand we can take is a political one. God help us. God help us. Patriotism is wonderful. But don't put it on the same level as spirituality. It's not. Not even close. We're deciding that the most important stand we can take is a political one. But God has sent me with an assignment. And the assignment is to stand not for a political platform, but rather to stand side by side with the sovereign Savior. Stand with the Savior when it comes to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness for all. Stand with the Savior when it comes to racial reconciliation. Stand with the Savior when it comes to loving your neighbor. Stand with the Savior when it comes to using your words to bring down walls. Stand with the Savior when it comes to any issue, no No matter where the issue falls, to the left or to the right, I couldn't care less. I want to know, what does Jesus say about the issue? It's him to whom I pledge my allegiance. It's him to whom I stand. I will see him face to face. Not a Republican, not a Democrat.